My name is Brad. I'm part of the Newtown Gospel community. And yeah, I feel like the last few times I've said that, there's been no one here from our GC. So it's nice to get a bit of a response. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dig into God's Word. Father, this morning, we ask that you would open our ears to hear the Word that your Spirit has for us. We ask that you would awaken our hearts to love you with everything that we've got. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Catherine and I were married in 2007, and eight weeks after we were married, we travelled to Colombia. And we were filming a documentary about the war in Colombia. There's been a civil war in that country that's been going for more than 40 years, and particularly focusing on Christians that are serving God in the war zones of that country. Colombia is a country that has been torn apart by drugs and violence and war. And while we were there, we had the opportunity to meet a former guerrilla fighter who'd converted and become a Christian. So we travelled down from Bogota, an eight-hour car journey through the jungles, Andes Mountains soaring above us, mountain streams coming down, and we met Henry, a small little man who used to crawl through the jungle, killing people. And he told us about his former life as a guerrilla and all the people that he'd killed, all the terrible things that he'd done, and how strongly he was against Jesus. So a lot of these guerrilla groups you know, they're inspired by communism and atheism. They've got Che Guevara and Fidel Castro as their heroes, and they are against Christianity. But one day Henry had met a guy who was a Christian who explained the gospel to him, who explained God's love to him, that Jesus died so that he could be forgiven for all these terrible things that, that Henry had done, that, that were weighing him, him down. And he decided to give his life to the Lord. But the thing is that, when you become a guerrilla, you're in for life. You can't just walk away. And so for him deserting his guerrilla group, it meant that he had a hit. He was on their hit list. He was a wanted man. Uh, but instead of going in, into hiding, Henry decided to use his life to go back into the jungles to share this same message of God's love with his former comrades, risking his life. This is a man who has known God's love for him so deeply that it's transformed everything that he, that he does, all his decisions. This is a man that loves God with his everything, with his heart. He's understood the gospel with his head, with his heart, and with his hands. So church, this morning, I want to ask you, do you love God with everything like Henry does? Can people see in your actions that you love the Lord? Catherine's dad, Gordon, he was up on the central coast at a, at a conference in Terrigal in November and he started having severe migraines and he lost sight in his left eye and he was a bit concerned, he was a bit worried and so he decided to go to hospital and they told him that he was having a stroke just, just back in November and he had to stay in Gosford Hospital for two weeks. It was a very scary time for us as a family. He still can't drive, still can't work. They're not really sure what happened. He's seeing specialists every second day. Uh, but the day after he had his stroke, he sent me this text. He said, good morning, my wonderful children. Yesterday, the day of the stroke, yesterday was a good day. Our dear Father in heaven allowed me to feel so loved and cared for. God tells us that all these things are for our good and yesterday was no exception. And then Gordy loves telling stories. He tells this long story about what happened as he came into the emergency room. 
uh, unable to see. When I was walking from the car to emergency, there was a young woman walking towards me who had two small children. Suddenly, she sat down on the path, her pram tipped over and her kids were confused. It was extremely hot. She was feeling very dizzy. I helped her lay down on the grass. I played with her little ones. I gave her some Coke, because that was the only liquid she had, and she gradually started to feel better. She was then able to continue her short journey home. God's perfect timing. He was able to see God's timing in his stroke so that he could be there to help this young woman and her children. He said, I'm praying for you all. I love you all dearly, Dad. What an amazing perspective from a man who just had a stroke the day before, able to see that God is working in this for his good. This is a man who loves God with his everything, with his head, with his heart and his hands. The love of God has overflowed into his life. And so church this morning, I want to ask you, do you love God with everything? Can people see that you love God in the way that you live your life? Now, throughout January, we've been doing a series of sermons where each week we just look at one verse in the Bible. Uh, we've called it Spurgeon style, after the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who famously would only preach in one verse at a time. And this morning I've chosen for us Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. So if you've got your Bibles, open that up, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and it says this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. I think this is such a beautiful verse, such an inspiring verse. It's central to the scriptures. It's central to the law that Moses is giving the people here as they prepare to go over into the promised land, telling them how they should live as his people. Jesus said that this command, this is the greatest command in all the Old Testament, that this sums up all of the scriptures, that all the law and the prophets hang off this command. As Christians, this is what we aspire to. This is what we sing about. This is the banner over our lives, to love God with everything we've got. At Anchor, we want to be a church where we live in community, on mission for Jesus. We want to love him with everything. This is a verse that calls for total devotion to God, to worship him alone, to love him alone with everything we've got. It says, with all our heart. With all our affections, all our emotions, for him to be our greatest joy and our greatest delight. But in the ancient world, the heart was not just the source of our emotions, but also the center of the will. So for us to love him with all our decisions, for us to make our decisions based on his will alone. For us to love him with our minds, for him to be our first thought in the morning, our last thought in the day, our constant source of meditation and prayer throughout all our days. For us to devote ourselves to knowing him with our soul. We're not just physical people, we're spiritual people and God wants us to live our lives in love for him with everything we've got. With all our might, our full capacities, all our resources, all our strength, all our money, all our time, every ounce of energy, every cent we've got, every second of every day devoted to loving him and doing everything for his glory. I want you to feel how all-encompassing this command is, this call is. Christianity is not something that takes up your Sunday morning. It takes up your whole life. God wants the gospel to saturate into every corner of our lives. Now, I'm inspired by this. Is anyone else inspired by this? This is what we want to live. I want this to be true of my life. I'm inspired by this. But I'm also, I'm also haunted by this. Yeah, I feel so inadequate preaching this sermon. I don't, I don't love God 
I have a wandering heart. We sing it, I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to wander. I feel it. I'm dissatisfied with my own love for God. I feel like this, this huge, insurmountable gulf between my meager offerings of love and the life of total devotion that God deserves. God wants me to love him with my whole heart. Not part of it, not most of it. 95% is 5% too short. You see, what we learn here is that there is no room for divided loyalties. Jesus told us that you cannot serve two masters. But the problem that we have is that all of us have divided hearts. We do not love God as he deserves or as he demands. Even on my best days, when I'm at my very best, my heart is shot through with sin, let alone when I'm at my worst. You know, it's like we're, when we're lawn bowling. I think we did this for summer sessions the other week, and you, you bowl the ball and just veers off to the left or the right. We just can't go straight. We've got something within us that's bent, that's broken. Our sinful, selfish hearts are just always turning us away from God. No matter how hard we try to go straight, we're always veering off to the right or the left. We love other things more than we love God. So I wonder what you love. What do you love with your heart? You can tell what a person loves by what he devotes himself to most passionately. And I think for me, one of the things that I devote myself most passionately to is my fantasy football team. And it sounds so silly and nerdy admitting that, but I love soccer. I love my fantasy Premier League team. I spend all week strategizing about my transfers and who's coming in, who's going out. The games are played on Saturday night, and so I wake you know, I think um, Ruben woke up at four o'clock this morning and I'm rocking him to sleep, looking at my phone, seeing how teams have gone overnight. I check my phone first thing in the morning, see how my fantasy team has done. And then as I'm coming to church, I'm... If I've, done, if, I've had a, if I've had a really good week, then I'm super excited. If I've made poor strategic decisions, then I'm walking around shoulders slumped, feeling so frustrated with myself. What about you? What do you love? What do you devote yourself to, your time and your energy? What is your life's overriding passion? What excites you? What gets a smile on your face, gets your blood pumping? What do you talk about most passionately? What do your actions tell us about what you truly love? What do you spend your time doing? What do you spend your money on? On the flip side, what, do you, what are you afraid of? What does that tell us about what you love? What makes you angry or frustrated or stressed? What does that tell us about what you love? Now, this summer, I'm studying at Bible college at the moment, and one of the perks of that is that we get a three-month summer break. Uh, and I had big aspirations for this summer. I was hoping that Catherine and I would uh, settle in some really good habits of quiet time and exercise, caring for ourselves spiritually and physically. I had this long to-do list of stuff that I wanted to get done for college and church. And just this summer, nothing has gone to plan. We started toilet training with Eva and we thought, you know, she's a clever kid. Anyone who knows her, we thought... One hour later, she'd be in undies and she'd be fine. And it's, she's still, like, she's doing, she's made a lot of progress. But, yeah, it's been really hard. It's toilet training. Whew, that's a way to wipe out a summer. <laughs> Our kids haven't been sleeping well. 
Eva split her head open and had to go to the hospital. Catherine's dad had a stroke. Catherine cricked her neck and couldn't get out of bed for a few days. A vomiting bug came through our family and wiped us all out. There was one week where every single one of us had to go to the doctor for something different. We were at the doctor every single day of the week. And then on top of that, there was all the preparation for Christmas. And I preached my Advent sermon in the lead up to Christmas. And it's like we were living that out, that crazy craziness of Christmas. And that to-do list that I had, I didn't get any of it done. And it left me tired and stressed and frustrated. What does that reveal about what I love? I think it reveals two things for me as I reflect on it. I think it reveals that I love to be in control. I love to make lists. I love to be organized. I love to plan. I love to set goals. I love to plan out my life. And what I'm doing is I'm pretending like I'm God. And I want to plan out how things are going to go, how things are going to go in my little kingdom. And when things don't go to plan, when I realize that I'm not God and I don't have control over my life, I get frustrated and stressed. And I think the second thing that it reveals about me and my heart and what I love is that I love the praise of others more than the praise of God. I put so much effort into staying on top of things and getting ahead and being organized and doing well because I want others to think highly of me. I want to prove myself. I want to prove myself to myself, let alone to other people. But when the work in front of me is piling up, when the to-do list is getting longer and longer and I just can't meet my own deadlines, my own expectations, I start to feel like a failure. Do you guys relate to any of this? Do you feel this? Do you see this in your own heart? You see, when my self-worth hangs on these things and they don't happen, when they fall apart, it's easy to hit rock bottom and have no more to give. No more to give to my family, let alone to love God with all my heart. How impossible is that? Whenever we elevate anything above God, whenever we elevate ourselves above God, it ends up crushing us and leaves us with very little capacity to love God with all our heart. See, this command is beautiful and it's impossible. This is a beautiful impossibility. We are to love God with all our hearts, all our soul, all our might. We don't do it. We can't do it. It's a call that we cannot live up to. But the good news of Deuteronomy and the whole Bible is that God never demands something from us that he hasn't first given to us. The God that demands that we love him with our everything is the God who first loved us with his everything. See, right here in Deuteronomy, before God demands anything from Israel, before he gives them the law, he's rescued them out of Egypt. They were stuck in slavery under Pharaoh. And God heard their cries and he came and rescued them. He rescued them from Pharaoh and brought them to the land he promised them. See, this rescue mission, the Exodus, it shapes the identity of God's people. For the rest of the Old Testament, as Israel looks back on their history and all that God has done for them, they look back and know that they are the people that God has rescued. They are the people that God has brought out of slavery to be his own special treasured possession. And as they experience this amazing love of God for themselves, this produces in their own hearts love for him. It's always in response to his love for us. But this first exodus, it points forward to the true and ultimate exodus, the ultimate expression of God's love for us at the cross as Jesus gives his life for us. You see, we used to be slaves. We were slaves to sin rather than worshipping God as he deserves the one who loves us and made us, we worship the stuff he's given us, 
We think we'll be happy, but all it does is enslave us and crush us. But God sent his son Jesus to set us free from slavery to sin. By his blood shed on the cross, the power of sin is broken. All our debts are paid. We are redeemed. And through faith in Christ, we belong to God. You see, this second exodus, this true exodus, this rescue mission, it shapes our identity as God's people today. We used to be slaves, but now we are sons. We have been loved by the Father. See, God is not a dictator who demands love out of us, who coerces love out of us. He's not a needy universal vacuum cleaner sucking praise out of an unwilling people. He's a loving Father who has loved us with his everything. The God who demands that we love him with our everything is the God who first loved us with his everything. He doesn't demand anything from us that he hasn't first given to us. And as we experience this amazing, indescribable love of God, this should produce love for us in, in us, love for him in us in response. But how does that happen? How does the gospel produce love for God in us? As we think about this, I'm going to work down through our head to our heart to our hands. It starts as we understand the gospel and what God has done for us. And then that tr transforms our hearts and changes what we love. And then it overflows into our life, you know, all that we do. So we're going to start with the head. So when you understand how much God loves you and how much he has forgiven you, it should produce love in your life. So it's like the parable that Jesus told of the two debtors. Does anyone remember that parable, Luke 7? Jesus is invited into the house of a religious guy, a Pharisee, and a woman of the city comes in, a prostitute, a sinner. It's a scandal. She comes in and starts washing Jesus' feet with this expensive perfume, and she's weeping over his feet and washing his feet with her hair. And the religious guy is, is horrified. He's recoiling that this, this prostitute has come in and spoiled the party. And he's also horrified that Jesus doesn't do anything about it. Jesus, don't you know who this is? That this is a sinner? Get her out of here. And Jesus responds by telling this parable that there were two debtors who owe, both owed money to a moneylender. One of them owed $100,000 and one of them owed $10,000. Neither of them could pay and both debts were cancelled. And Jesus asked the Pharisee, which of those debtors will love the moneylender more? And the Pharisee goes, well, I guess the one who's had the large debt cancelled. And Jesus points to the woman and compares him to a Pharisee. That this woman, when she came in, she was weeping over Jesus' feet, bought this expensive perfume and hasn't stopped. And when Jesus came into the Pharisee's house, there was none of it. The one who has been forgiven much, loves much. The one who's been forgiven just a little bit, well, just loves a little bit. And I think most of us walk around thinking like this. You know, we think we're all right. We don't have that much of a debt. We're pretty good people. We're not, we haven't done that much wrong. We don't really need that much from God. We scrub up all right. We might not say it out loud, but I think that's how we live a lot of the time. The result is that we think that we're all right. We just need to be forgiven just a tiny bit. And so the result is that we don't love God with everything. So we need to see the true state of our predicament without Jesus, that we have sinned before him. We have an 
a huge debt that we owe to God. We deserve death. We are in a desperate state, drowning in sin. Debts we could not pay. We are destined for judgment and condemnation. And we desperately need a saviour to rescue us. There's nothing that we do that we can do to save ourselves. It's not just like we've shortchanged God. And he just so looks at it. It's like we are on death row. When you understand how great your debt is before God and that he's cancelled it, he's wiped it all away, he's forgiven us, feels like this amazing burden has been lifted from your shoulders. Just like Henry at the start, he had this huge weight on his shoulders, all this guilt of all the people that he'd killed and all the terrible things that he'd done and the good news of the gospel that all of that could go on Jesus, that all of that debt could be cleared from his shoulders and he could stand up straight. No shame, no guilt, no fear. Produce love in his heart. So church, this morning, I want to ask you, when you analyse your heart, do you think you're over here? Or do you think you're over here? Do you see how great your debt is that you owed before God? And do you see what Christ has done to wipe it all away, to forgive you? So when you truly understand in your head how much you have been forgiven by God, when you see things rightly, love for God will spring forth in your heart. Jonathan Edwards, who was a pastor and theologian in the 18th century, said that the chief mark of conversion, the chief mark of being a Christian, is affection for God in our lives, love for God. So church, this morning, I want to ask you, do you love God? Does your heart warm at the good news of the gospel? Is there joy and gratitude when you reflect on all that God has done for you? Now, for some of you here today, you might look at your heart and you go, it doesn't. My heart is far from God. God longs for us to come back to him. He longs for you to come back. He's like a father waiting with open arms to embrace you for you to come home. And when you get there, there's not guilt and condemnation. There is grace and forgiveness and feasting and celebration. Maybe for some of you today, God is pursuing your heart right now. And you've been struck by his amazing love for you and the forgiveness that he offers you. This morning, I don't want you to walk out of here leaving that conviction unchecked. After the sermon, as we worship God together, there's going to be a prayer team up in the back corner. We would love to pray for you. We'd love to lead you to know this love of God. So please come and join us after the sermon. We'd love to pray for you. So it starts in the head. And as we've understood the love of God in our head, it moves down and transforms our hearts. So we're like a house on the block being renovated. We were derelict, but God is changing us. Every room, every corner of our hearts. Now, how does this transformation happen? It starts with repentance. Now, when we usually think of repentance, we usually think, I've done something wrong. Sorry, God, I won't do that again. Help me not to do it again. And then we go and do it again. Is there, has anyone else been stuck in that trap, that cycle? Jesus doesn't want external box ticking. He wants our hearts. He doesn't want rituals. He wants a deep internal commitment. From the heart comes everything that we do. It's the spring of our actions. And Jesus blasted the Pharisees because they honoured God with their lips. They did everything external right, but their hearts were far from God. See, Christianity is not about behaviour modification. It's not about changing the externals. It's about inner transformation. So what we need is not just to repent of the bad fruits that we see on the outside, what we need is to repent of the bad roots in our heart that produce 
that bad fruit. Didn't Jesus say that it's from the evil in the heart that evil comes out of us? See, behind all of our sin is a lie about God. It's taken root in our hearts. We need to uproot that false belief and believe the truth of the gospel. So I'm going to use myself as a case study, being vulnerable with you guys today. At the start, I confessed that I love control. And so I get frustrated when things don't go to plan. What I'm believing there is that it's all up to me. In that moment, I'm believing lies about God. I believe that God isn't with me. God isn't providing for me. God doesn't lead me. I'm the one that's in control of my life. I make all the calls, not God. I determine what's going to happen. I need to preach the gospel to my heart. I need to remind myself, God, you are my father. You deeply love me. You deeply care for me. You are in control of my life. You have demonstrated your love for me at the cross and that I can trust you. You are the one who is leading me through the craziness of my life, through all the bad times and the good times and all of it for my good. I am deeply loved. I'm deeply cared for by God. And so I don't need to stress out. I don't need to stress out when things don't go to plan. I just need to cast my burdens, cast my fears, cast my worries on my Father who loves for me, loves me and cares for me. What this does, this process of repentance, repenting of bad belief, turning to the truth is it produces love in our hearts rather than loving control i love my father who is in control and it gives me peace and rest in the craziness of life i also confess that i love the praise of others that i get stressed out when i don't meet my own deadlines and my own expectation because i believe that i need to prove myself to others i need to repent of the lies that i'm believing about god in those moments in those moments of stress, I'm believing that the cross isn't enough, that I still need to strive to prove myself because God's opinion isn't nearly as important as the opinion of other people in my life. I need to preach the gospel to my heart. God, you are my father. You loved me so much that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for, for me to deal with my sin. You've forgiven me. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm fully loved, fully accepted before God, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. So I don't need to try and prove myself. I don't need to try and prove myself anymore. I don't need to try and win the praise of men. What that process of repentance does, as I repent of my bad belief and I turn to God, is that produces love in my heart, love for the one who has accepted me through his son Jesus, produces joy and peace in my heart. You see, our, our hearts are like magnets. They're drawn irresistibly to whatever they love. Just like what Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. See, repent, what repentance is, is it's moving the magnet. It's taking the magnet from over here <coughs> and putting it over here. It's recalibrating our hearts. Now, repentance isn't something that just needs to be done once when you become a Christian. Repentance is a daily need for us for the rest of our lives. We're like a piano. See, a piano needs to be tuned every time it's moved. Are there any pianists out there? Has anyone ever moved a piano and the strings go all out of tune? See, our hearts are wandering away from God every single day. We're on the move. Our hearts need to be tuned every single day to sing his praise. It's only from a transformed heart, repenting of our false beliefs and believing in the truth of the gospel, that we can believe that we can begin to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength. So 
starts in the head, moves down to our hearts, and it overflows in our lives, out to our hands, into all of life. What might that look like for us? To be a people who have experienced the love of God so much that he's poured his love so much into our hearts that it overflows. What does that look like? I think the hard thing about making this so super practical is that it affects everything. This is the banner over all our lives. This is all-encompassing and should affect every corner of your life, every decision you make, every dollar you spend, every relationship you have, every decision you make, every conversation you have. But still, I've picked out what I think should be five marks for what love for God might, might look like in our lives as it overflows in our hearts. And the, fir- the first one, I think, is passion. Passion for God. We should have an overflowing love for the Lord. We should be a person that is completely captured by Jesus. He is our driving passion. You still love your wife. You still love your job. You still love your kids. You still love coffee. I still love fantasy Premier League. But my love for God, our love for God sits above all this and governs it all. As we enjoy those good things that he's given us, we're doing it all giving thanks to him. You see, people should be able to tell that we love God, that we're passionate about God when they're with us. They should be able to walk away going, That guy really loves Jesus. As we worship God here on Sundays, we should be people that sing like Jesus is really alive. We should lift the roof on this place with passion. We should sing like our sins have really been forgiven. Now, I want to acknowledge that for some of us, passion doesn't come naturally. Affection doesn't come naturally. You might not be a touchy-feely person. You might not have been loved well yourself, and so you don't really know how to love. You might have clinical depression and you just don't feel like love. I want to say two things if you identify with any of that. I want to say first, the power of the gospel, it's not in the measure of your love for God. It's in God's love for you. I don't want you to leave here feeling guilty that you haven't loved God enough, focusing only on your love for God. I want you to hear God's abundant love for you and to receive grace at the cross. But second, Some of us need to fight for joy. You might be a pessimist, a negative Nancy. You walk around and all you see is the bad stuff and you're just picking, you're super critical. There's not much joy. There's no gratitude or gladness in your heart. The gospel should produce love for God. It should erupt spontaneously in our hearts. But if you're not naturally an emotional person, if you're a pessimist, then you need to choose joy. You need to choose to love God with all your heart. Now, that's not manufacturing an emotion that isn't there. It's preaching the gospel to your heart and reminding yourself of the great joy that it is to be loved by God. So the first mark is passion. Second mark is that we talk about the gospel. People talk about the things that they love, don't they? What do you talk about? As a church, we want to be a church that is on mission. We've got good news for our city, of forgiveness of sins, of eternal life. Do we talk about these wonderful things that Jesus has done for us? In Deuteronomy 6, we see it as well. This is what it looks like for the people of Israel, to talk about the amazing things that God has done, to talk about these commandments. In verse 7, it says, You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the, the way and when you lie down and when you rise. We should be a church that is fluent in the gospel. In every conversation, every household, every moment, reminding one another of what Jesus has done for us. 
The third thing, the third mark of love in our hearts is obedience. Again, we see this in Deuteronomy 6. God has commanded these things so that the people might go over into the land and do them. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now, this isn't obedience so that we can manipulate God and get a blessing out of him. This life of obedience in the law of God is the life of blessing. This is the way that God made us to live. And when we love God, we love the things that he loves and we want to live the way that he has designed us to make, to live. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Passion, we talk about the gospel, obedience. And fourth, fourth mark, delight in the word of God. If we love God, we want to know him. We want to know him deeply. We want to, and the way that we know him is through his word. Psalm 19 paints, paints a beautiful picture of what this delight in the word of God looks like as the psalmist reflects on the scriptures. He says that they are more to be desired than gold. Is that true of your attitude to the Bible? Do you desire to know God more than you desire to grow your bank account? They're sweeter than honey. Revive the soul. They make us wise. They rejoice the heart. I think we all know that we feel most spiritually alive when we're deep in the Word. I know that's the case for me. I feel like my love for God peaks when I'm saturated in the Scriptures and when I'm surrounded by people who love Jesus, who are reminding me of the Gospel. Deuteronomy 6, again, it paints this picture in verse 6 of a community that has God's Word on their hearts. And these words that I command you today, they shall be on your hearts. The, the Word of God kindles in us the love of God. The Word of God kindles in our hearts the love of God. It's keeping God's word central in our lives that nourishes our love for God. Now, most of us here will know that quote by C.S. Lewis that our desires are not too strong but too weak. We need stronger desires for God. Our love for him should grow throughout our lives and it's the word of God that helps our love to grow. On our wedding day, Catherine and I prayed in our wedding vows, may God enable us to grow in love together. Our love wasn't complete on the day we got married. That wasn't the end of our love story. It was the start of it. Marriage should be like a good wine that gets better with age. It should be like that. The longer you go, the deeper you know each other, the more you've walked together, the more that you love one another. And how much more should we desire that in our relationship with God? You can fall deeper in love with God, your Saviour. Wouldn't that be a, goal, a great goal for you for this year? To cultivate in your heart an ever-increasing love for Jesus by devoting yourselves to the Scriptures. Passion, talk about the Gospel. Obedience, delight in the world. And the fifth one we're going to consider today is love, love for others. We encounter other people the same way that God has encountered us. Just like God has sent his son Jesus to serve us by laying down his life at the cross as a ransom for us, we now serve others. Just as Jesus has just as God has given us his generous, extraordinary grace, we're now generous to others. Just as God has welcomed us into his family, adopted us as sons, we now show hospitality and welcome to others. Love for others is the fifth mark of what love might look like overflowing into all of our lives. Now, our ultimate example of loving God with everything, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, 
is Jesus. He is the only person who can stick up his hand, who can say truly that he has loved God with everything, all his heart, all his soul, all his mind. He was completely obedient to his Father. He loved him so much that he obeyed his will, not his own, and went to the cross to die for us. It's his obedience, his love for the Father, his righteousness that counts for us. Where we fail, his love counts for us. It's only because of his love for God and his love for us that we can now love him with everything. And that should be the banner over our lives. That should overflow into everything that we do. Hope you've been challenged this morning, church. Hope this is a verse that you can stick up in your, as a banner over your hearts and that you want to grow in this area this year. I know I, know I certainly do. We're going to come now to a time of worship. The band is going to come up. And this is an opportunity for us to put that first mark into practice, to be a people that is passionate for the Lord, that has an overflowing love, to sing like Jesus has really risen from the grave, like our sins have truly been forgiven. The first song we're going to sing is Saviour King. And it says, we love you, Lord. We worship you. You alone are God. You alone are good. You sent your son to carry this, that heavy weight, our weight of sin, that heavy cross, the weight of sin. Let's sing that from the heart. Let's really mean that. Let's sing that with passion. I'm also going to invite you to come forward to take the Lord's Supper, to, to take that and remember God's amazing, generous love for you. As we take that bread, which symbolizes Jesus' body, which was broken for us, and dip it in the juice, which symbolizes Jesus' blood shed for us and for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take that, eat it, and give thanks to God for his abundant love for us. And if today, if you have been challenged, there will be people at the back to pray for you, and we'd love to pray for you. Let me pray for us now. Father, we do thank you so much for your love for us at the cross, that you for us, and that it's only the gospel that can produce love in our hearts for you. Father, we ask that you would awaken our hearts, that you would enlarge our love for you, and that we would serve you with everything that we've got that your love would overflow into all of our lives and that as people see our lives and our actions, that they would be able to see that we love you and that we have been greatly loved by you. We pray this in Jesus' name.